Hello and welcome to this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lav. We are both, even though it looks like we're both in the same clubhouse, uh, in fact, we are not. I am in Boynton Beach, Florida, Pine Tree Golf Club, primo venue uh, for golf's longest day, uh, final qualifier for the U.S. Open. Rex, I believe you're in Springfield. Uh, it looks miserable. Uh, it looks gray. Uh, how are things going? We're, we're recording this uh, in between the two rounds. Obviously, it's 36 holes. We now have about three or four hours to kill until we have to do our uh, advancing interviews. How are things going at this point? It's, uh, it's actually beautiful here the last two days, really. It was really hot all week long at the Memorial over in Columbus, which is about 40 minutes from here. And it was just scorching hot. I mean, I think you saw it on the I'm telecast. in South Florida. Let's, let's, be, let's be realistic here. No, actually, I, lo- I looked at it a couple of times, and it was actually warmer and more humid in Columbus, Ohio, than it was in Orlando, Florida a couple of days last week. So it, it was brutally hot. And I think you saw, saw that with the golf course. Muirfield Village played really different this year. It was firm. It was fast. We never get those conditions. But it's actually beautiful now. The last two mornings here have been, I think it was 47 degrees when I showed up. And this, it is cloudy, but I think the players would probably want it that way. If you're going to walk 36 holes, it's probably the best conditions. Who is at your qualifier? I know by the time this posts, uh, we'll already know who has advanced into next week's U.S. Open. Uh, But for the folks at home, who are some of the players that you are coming into contact with? Uh, It's kind of the beauty about the qualifier, right? It's probably some players that you've never heard of. I mean, one of the players you probably have heard of is Troy Merritt. He's right there. He's qualified through this venue twice before in 20 and 2021. Uh, Kramer Hickok, obviously a PGA Tour player. He shot four under. He's right there in the mix. So yeah, Dylan Wu, I think he was at seven under. He had the first round lead. So you had some names that were familiar and some that really weren't familiar, which I think is kind of the beauty. Of Why would this. you ever a- go to a qualifier in which there's PGA Tour players? Well, this one's kind of weird and like I'm going to talk around this because I don't want to upset my friends at the Miami Valley Golf Association that do a really good job and are sitting right next to me right now. But so this one is a little weird because it's so close to Columbus and the Memorial. And like I've done it the last three or four years. And they, of course, have the big qualifier over there. It's two courses, Todd Lewis, Andrew Bradley, super, uh, super producer is over there. But this one gets a lot of spillover from that one as far as tour players go. And you're starting to see more and more guys decide just to make the drive over. Like JJ Spawn was in my hotel last night and we were talking and he was telling me that he normally plays Columbus. And the reason that he sort of changed gears this year is first and foremost, it's only one golf course. You don't have to worry about the logistics of bouncing back and forth and having to scramble 20, 30 minutes to drive over to whatever the other golf course is in Columbus. You only have to learn 18 holes instead of 36 holes. And you are kind of competing against, I mean, if we're being honest, it's an 87-player field. Probably only have to beat, if you're a PGA Tour player, 20 of those guys. So you have to like your odds. Normally they give about seven or eight spots out to the U.S. Open. This year it's down to five. I think all the venues are down. But this one has a good amount of PGA Tour pros in it. It is interesting. So we just have like a bereft of star power here uh, in South Florida. We were supposed to have Daniel Berger – Make it a rehab start. He's not played on the PJ Tour in nearly a year. Uh, he ended up WDing late last week. We're supposed to have Fred Biondi, the NCAA individual champion. Uh, he ended up turning pro and making his pro debut this week on the Corn Ferry Tour, thus forfeiting a spot 
in next week's U.S. Open. It's still a possibility, especially by the time that this podcast posts, that the USG does the right thing and gives him a special exemption, as they did with Rose Zhang after winning the NCAA championship. Turns pro, USJ turned around and gave a special invitation to get her into the U.S. Women's Open, hopefully do the right thing, and do that with Fred Biondi. And Matthew Wolf, one of the two live players, uh, who is uh, supposed to tee it up here at Pine Tree. Obviously, we all remember the 2020 U.S. Open. Looked like it was going to be a historic uh, feat for him. Ended up finishing second there. T15 the following year at Torrey Pines has since gone to live. Uh, and there's a lot of rumors, speculation about what happened uh, currently with Matthew Wolf. Uh, he had lived stripped from all the social media channels. Uh, there's a lot of speculation that Brooks Koepke has kicked him off the team. So I was actually like genuinely looking forward to catching up with Matthew Wolf on Monday here in South Florida. And that will not come to be. And so, yeah, we have a lot of, uh, I mean, relative no names, a lot of players on many tours, a lot of players just trying to start Take it easy. Uh, their, their pro careers. Carlos Ortiz is in the field, uh, and at least through the morning wave, looks like he should nab one of the three spots that is available here right you just covered the memorial tournament it is very noisy there apologies to our friends who are listening to this in an audio medium i sure hope by now uh, that you would have learned to uh, at least mute your microphone or perhaps find an alternate location uh, absent of that it was a very compelling uh, final round of the memorial tournament roy mcroy shared the 54 hole lead ended up shooting 75 we're certainly going to get to roy here in a second but this was the denny mccarthy victor hovland duel that no one Saw coming, no one anticipated. What were your thoughts on Sunday from a fast, fiery, baked out Muirfield Village, which is just the way that Jack wanted it? Uh, no one wants for me to go here at Springfield Country Club. It's a very small clubhouse, and I looked around and I just noticed this right on the other side here. So, uh, this one right here. No, that's not right. This one right here. There you go. It's brought to you by, there it is, the letter five. The number five. This podcast is brought to you by the number five. Um, there's no one wants to go. I apologize for the noise. It's ambient noise. Consider it just. It, we're in the press room. Consider just, this just, just, just pick your microphone up then. That would certainly uh, I have a hard enough time keeping the microphone plugged in. I don't think you want me tinkering around with it. Uh, it was interesting with Rory McIlroy taking a share of the lead into the final round because, and I wrote this on Saturday night, the idea that the third-ranked player in the world going into the final round against some players who you, you would argue outside of Siwoo Kim really didn't have the resumes that you would think on paper would match up, and yet everything that Rory said – didn't fill me full of confidence at all. He sounded like Dave Chappelle when we asked him about his chances on Sunday. He was like, well, I mean, I'm in the lead, but we'll see. Like, it was kind of like you're, you're the world third rank. You're the world's third rank player. And he was kind of crystal clear on this one. He did not talk around it. He does not feel comfortable with the swing. He's made the decision to make these changes. And that's a fine. Talk about not muting a mic. That's when you mute the mic. Sure. That's a fine. Yeah. We'll, Five dollars. In hindsight, absolutely should have just muted myself. Yeah. Didn't though. That, that, that's not the professional thing to do. Uh, and I, I would argue that in his particular, he did it again. Oh, it's a visual medium. I can see you cover your mouth. Muted. <laughs> Nailed it. I would argue that he's been very, very clear about the swing changes that he's decided to embrace midseason. And like he talked about it last week, that I know this is not the time. When you want to do these with all of these big events, the major championships, the designated events, the playoffs coming up. But he said he just felt like he had to do it at this point, that it was just something he had to embark on. And he was really clear last week saying that, look, I've been going in the wrong direction for six, seven, eight months. It's going to take more than six, seven, eight days 
for me to turn this around. Like this he is was going playing to be some of the best golf of his career last summer and last fall. Finished top eight in every single major championship last year. Got back to world number one for the first time in a handful of years. Yeah. I, I mean, he basically just shut it down for two months, which he has a right to do. But to say that he was going the wrong direction with swing is is certainly surprising. It just seems like he got off earlier this year. Well, actually, he said it started creeping in at the end of last year. And you can point to like the CJ Cup, which was in the fall. But now you get towards the end of the year. He probably took December, November, didn't pass. Uh, spent a lot of time playing golf. And again, when he embarked on this season, he wins in Dubai to start the year. He finishes second at Bay but Hill. Didn't, didn't play particularly well there. That was kind of a short game and putting that bailed him out. Sure. And I think what we saw at Mirrorfield Village, which is shocking, you can look at what he does off the tee, and he's still Rory McIlroy. I mean, he's still the same version that he always was. He's dominant off the tee with the driver in his hand, even at a place like Jack's place. And Jack tries to take the driver out of your hand as much as possible. The part that was shocking to me is how many wedge shots would not hit poorly. Awful. Terrible. Unbelievably bad. I mean, we're talking about from 116 yards, uh, 96 yards, and he doesn't, let alone get it close. He doesn't hit the green. He, he's putting himself in terrible positions. He can't get up and down. That, to me, I think speaks to where he knew his game was and what he knew he had to do. He actually showed some signs of progress with his driver. It has not been the typical dominant driving year that we've grown accustomed to seeing Roy McIlroy over the past decade, but he actually – uh, hit the ball off the tee quite well. I believe he was third off uh, off the tee, strokes gained uh, among what was obviously a star-studded leaderboard at Mirfield Village. As you mentioned, the last two rounds, the weekend rounds at Mirfield Village, were terrible. His approach play, his proximity to the hole was terrible. His distance control was really bad. He hit just seven greens on Saturday, uh, hit just nine greens in the final round, just putting way too much pressure on his short game to try to save himself. And so, uh, yeah, I think he's he's not quite as sharp as he would want to be heading now uh, into his title defense at the RBC uh, Canadian Open and then obviously next week at the U.S. Open. I did see at least some signs of progress with his driver, which does imbue me with a little bit of confidence. He, you know, he can get some, some competitive rust off this week in Canada and be a little bit sharper as we head into the year's third major. And I kind of did this last night. I actually did a column on Scotty Scheffler, which we can get into in a second. But I was sort of taken with the idea, and, and I sort of just did a breakdown castle of the top five players, top five at that moment. They have, they've changed. Victor Hoblin moved to number five. But the top five at that point and sort of where they are in their games at a very crucial point of the year, as you pointed out, the U.S. Open is in two weeks. And I sort of Rom got away. dusted. Rom got dusted by Scotty on Sunday. I mean, it, it was really kind of amazing to me because you can kind of go down the list and none of the five are playing particularly well. I mean, there's there's part bits and pieces of all five that you can point at and well I mean, none of them team. none of them are fool none of them are foolproof if that's what you're saying. And maybe say maybe that, is not playing well is is a mass overreach. I, I would argue that, and again, Scotty's sort of an entirely different story. It is statistically impossible to do what he did on Sunday, to hit the ball as well as he did. He gained more than 20 strokes. On it's the not field. statistically he's impossible. Been. He's been doing it for the entire year. No, no, no. That's the second best in, this, in the shot link era. That's only behind Vijay Singh back, I don't know, a decade ago, whatever the case may be. He was so dominant that, and yet he, and he puts himself in the lead only because he's dead last in putting. That's the part that's statistically impossible, that even though he putted still awful, terrible, whatever adjective you want to use, he still found a way to put himself in the contention and he had to kind of wait around and see how it was going to play out with the playoff. That to me 
is, is amazing. And I know there's a level of frustration. And I'm sure at this point, he's trying to stay as calm as possible because that's sort of Scotty's MO. We, we all learned a lot about him watching the Netflix special. But at some point, that's we- got to eat at you. Uh, I think we did, more so than others, I would argue. Hmm. I felt kind of underwhelmed by the Scotty part, but uh, that's not a completely a surprise. Like, like, what was your favorite staff? that's what we all learned about Scotty. <clears throat> what was your favorite staff from last week as it pertains to Scotty? Was it the fact that he lost eight and a half shots to the field on the green? Yes. Was it the fact that he didn't, he, didn't, he didn't make more than 54 feet of putts in a single round? Was it the fact that he didn't make a putt longer than nine feet across yes. 72 holes? And yet he still just finished a shot outside the playoff <clears throat> what do you yeah. think is going on here? It. is it is it is it confidence is it a stroke issue is it the fact that his swing coach randy smith uh, is recovering from back surgery and probably is not as hands-on uh, as he typically is because boy i mean he we're, we're talking about mm-hmm. squandering a player squandering five four five six great chances to win golf tournaments with, with putting that, that isn't just, that isn't just average. It's not even just poor. I, I mean, this is bottom of the field level negativity when it comes to Scotty Shepard. Like it's, it's, it's borderline emergency. Uh, I'm going to dismiss the Randy Smith thing right out of the gates. Cause Randy and I had a long talk about this at Oak Hill <clears> when <throat> Scotty started playing well early in the week. And he pointed out that he really, hasn't worked with him on his putting in a very long time, really since he was a kid. He said putting is something that's very personal to Scotty. He said he's always kind of embraced it himself. He goes, look, he'll bounce ideas off of me, but it's not as though we sit down and talk about the mechanics of putting. I mean, they had an animated thought, discussion. Remember on the putting green at Augusta National? They have Scotty animated was... discussions everywhere. It's it's <laughs> sort of Scotty's MO, and, and it's sort of Randy's MO. Like, that's why I think they fit so well together, that Scotty's going to push back, and Randy's going to push back, and they've been doing this since he was a teenager. So I don't think any of that is out of the ordinary. I, I would say it's more of a confidence thing at this point, because speaking with him on Sunday when he walked off the course at Mirafield Village, he went through his card when I sort of brought up the idea, do you feel like you're close or do you feel like you're miles away? Like, wh- wh- where do we stand in all of this? And he almost went hole by hole saying, well, I left this one on the lip and this one was, you know, just right edge. And, and he felt like he, Whatever he, you get to pointed, yourself. He, he pointed to one putt. He went through all 18 and he pointed to one putt on number 10 from three and a half feet that he missed, didn't even touch the hole that he wanted back. And, and the point there at least in his mind, was in this is probably what the best players do to themselves all the time. He's convinced himself that he's putting well. They're just Yo, not falling. Right he keeps saying, I'm hitting good putts, yeah. and they're just not falling. I mean, I don't think – I mean, there's nothing else he can say publicly. Pri- you know, privately, he may be freaking out. Publicly, you can't say anything other than, I'm hitting good putts, and eventually it's gonna, all going to even out. I think there was a moment when I did ask him, because uh, Thursday and Friday, he spent about an hour on the putting green after his round, which, and you asked me what stats stood out. So I thought 42 feet of putts made on Thursday was really, really bad. And as opposed to the rest of the field and the tour average, it is really, really bad. And on Sunday when he was six under par, and as you pointed out, made a run at the lead, he made a grand total of 43 feet of putts. So keep in mind how bad this is. I mean, the only putts he's making are essentially tap-ins. I don't know after every round he would go to the putting green. And he's tinkering with putters now, and he was even putting with a with a lob wedge. He said it helps him release the toe. All of it is starting to reach a point of desperation. And to your point, they're wasting great opportunities for victories here. I mean, the idea that you can hit the ball that well week in and week out is probably not realistic. 
And so you, you would think he needs to find some sort of fix soon. I, I mean, it's been it's been a really, really good year. I mean, he won the Players' Championship, defended his title in Phoenix, has had countless other opportunities. It's just it could have been an insane stretch of golf with how good his ball striking has been had he just been average. And, and look, he's, he's always been a pretty good putter. I think last year was the outlier average. in terms of how well – he putted. That was probably the outlier from his career. But if he just improves a couple of shots per tournament on the greens, which law of averages you would kind of expect him to do, boy, I mean, he's going to rip off win after win after win. That's how well. You mean if he's if he only gives if he only gives six shots to the field on the greens instead of eight and a half? Five just shots be to... average. Just be middle of the pack. Just be mediocre uh, on the greens. Uh, and he was top so third dominant with his on tour last year. Right now. He was top third on tour last year, and, and I think he can get back to that. But it, it, at some point, it becomes concerning. And again, this is the idea of going through the top five. Keep going down the top five. I, I thought what I saw Patrick Cantlay was even more concerning on Sunday. I watched him warm up a little bit on the range. This trainer came out. It was kind of disturbing when you consider that Colin Morikawa did something in his warm-up and tweaked his back and wasn't able to play. And then you look at John Rahm, who just kind of seemed flat. I mean, look, it's not as though I think John Rahm, I wouldn't put him in Scotty's territory because it's not as though he's doing one thing really, really poorly. He's just not at his normal standard. We've already addressed Rory McIlroy's wedge play. You can keep going down the list. I mean, and I don't even know Xander Schauffele is the, probably the one that I feel like is – rolling along at a, at a decent enough clip that I would be that I would point to and say yes I really really like him at I LAC mean, you mean my, my PJ Tour player of the year pick who does not have a single victory this season him yes that's the one and of the top five I think if you look at at least and again this is a recency bias and it's what have you done for me lately and but these are the top five players and you're just not seeing the production out of them he finished second you can't take anything away from Scotty Scheffler but man that's a glaring second so you, you highlighted all those players, and I completely agree. I don't think any of them right now are all systems go, like we saw Rom right, like in January, February. Every time he teed it up, uh, he was going to be dominant. The player who is playing the best right now, indisputably, and is now actually closing out golf tournaments, is Victor Hovland. Yeah. Second to last group at the Masters, final group at the PGA Championship, took Brooks, took, took Brooks Kepka all the way, 16th hole, had that unfortunate break. Uh, in the fairway bunker on 16, uh, had a kind of fade on Sunday at Colonial, but he backed it up at Jack's place with a really good round. His short game is still a little bit of a concern. I think we kind of talked about this at Oak Hill too, why why Victor Hovland was up there. Having long, thick, dense rough around the greens actually helps mitigate some of the struggles that he has. The struggles he's going to have is is pitching off really tight, grainy Bermuda, kind of using the bounce in the club. That's that's what he's still learning. like what they have at LACC? Under Joe Mayo, yes. So, like, I saw a Phil Mickelson tweet that said, like, you have to put Victor Hovland now, if not the favorite, among the favorites. And, look, I I agree. I don't think you can have – I don't think you can have Victor Hovland any worse than five on your list. But that is going to present a different challenge around the greens than Muirfield Village did, than Oak Hill did. Uh, and so I'm very curious to see how he did. However, I did think that the memorial victory was was validating for Victor Hovland. Good resume. He's won kind of in tropical locales. He's won abroad, but to win on U.S. Yeah, soil um, with as stout of a test as that is after so many close calls, uh, it felt like a big moment for Victor. 
No, and I think there, there was a really cool moment in the press center after the victory on Sunday where and Jack Nicholas does a really neat thing, and he's in, in there with the winner's victory, and he's kind of almost narrating it. And it's a lot of fun and to have him there talking about his golf course and the way this particular player played. And Jack was almost in awe of listening to Victor talking about, look, I knew this was a problem early in my career. I knew I could not continue to stand over chips and realize that, man, there's no way I'm going to get this anywhere close. He goes, I could, if I short-sighted myself, I knew it was a bogey already and how he sort of worked his way out of it. I'm going to do full disclosure here. And, and look, I'm, I'm, this is, this is 100% honesty. I did a radio interview Sunday morning and they were kind of rifling through, For free? you know, do you like to, yeah, I did, it was pro bono work. Most of what I do is pro bono work. Uh, and they were sort of rifling through sort of, do you like this guy? Albuquerque, like hello. Uh, no, this was actually in, in Vegas, which is, you know, like, and I get really, really nervous because then they start talking about gambling. Like, you, I'm better than you are, but not by much. <laughs> so it gets a little scary. And they asked me point blank about Victor Hovland. And I literally, I made this face since it was a visual medium. And no. The scrunchy, no, the scrunchy be, face for those. The scrunchy face. Them. If you think of it as a scrunchy face emoji, that's exactly what I look like with my face glowing red. And simply because of the reasons we just pointed out, I just don't have any faith in his short game. And look, he hit some chips Sunday at Mirfield Village that lead me to believe that, man, I still don't have a lot of faith in his short game. As you pointed out, Granny Bermuda is not his friend, and that's what he's going to have at LACC. But I'm coming off that opinion more and more every day. And even I don't even think he had to win yesterday. Certainly that, that is a, an impressive feat and sort of gets oh, me. Oh, I do. I thought it, it gets he, me thinking he, he in the other direction. had to close out a golf tournament. Especially that level. And look, I, I, if it was Rory in the playoff, and maybe I would have held it to a higher standard, but that's still pretty good. I mean, this is this is an invitational. These mean more than the others. These are player-hosted invitationals. Rory talked about it, The sort of the legend slam. I'm still concerned about the short game, but I'm coming off that more and more by the day. He's gotten better, which is, I mean, that's 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 all you wanted. Like, he... He Strokes gain around so the green. Coaches. He's 136th on tour, and he's giving up a str- almost a stroke per round. So but it's I mean, not as though we're way off base. No, but, but we're talking about a player who a year or two ago was was literally he was the second worst around the greens on the PGA Tour. It is exceedingly rare to find a player with with his of, of his caliber uh, and his accomplishments that had such a glaring weakness in his game. So I think the best thing you can say about Victor Hovland is that the work he's done with Joe Mayo, he's actually seen improvement. He's gone through so many coaches, so many different techniques, and nothing was really working. He would he would chip and pitch well one round and really not know why he did and then kind of regress the next day. Like he actually there, – there's there's signs of – there's there's tangible signs of improvement and progress, which I think has to be – uh, incredibly rewarding for him. Uh, all the hard work. He's one of the hardest workers on the PGA Tour. So to see work he's done on and around the greens, uh, he's now a very solid putter, as we saw, uh, holding several clutch putts uh, to make sure he got in the playoff uh, with Denny McCarthy. I thought this Putting's was good. huge yeah. for Victor Hovland. Just the confidence to know, hey, my ball striking didn't have to be top-notch as it typically did. I have other parts of my game that were able to, able to bail me out. Uh, and I thought uh, that was very important. How do you think you mentioned kind of the stars and a little bit of their game that might not quite be as sharp as they want. When you look at LACC, I think for most golf fans, it's going to be largely unknown what to expect there. Talking to the USGA officials that week, like they were legitimately concerned with without rough that you're going to be a 15, 20 under par there. Which player that you mentioned among that upper echelon do you feel most confident, I guess, in one, one week to go? 
Uh, like I said, I think Xander, simply because I feel What's he like done? what has he done this year? Uh, not a whole lot uh, of anything. And, and second on that list, and, and you know, I kind of said concerning about what I saw on Sunday. You take that out, but Patrick Cantley would be the other one because based on uh, I did a lot of interviews for kind of a preview story on LACC. He's from LA. He's probably played it more than anyone else, whatever that means. I mean, look, they all show up early. They all have yardage books. They all can learn the golf course. But there's going to be a, a comfort level there for him. And, and I don't see, we don't see Patrick excited very often. When I interviewed him about what to expect, there was, a, there was an edge to his voice that's normally not there, where you can tell this one means a little bit more than the other ones do. Now, sometimes that doesn't work out very well. But I would put those two sort of ahead of the others. I mean, look, it's hard to ignore John Rom. And the last time they played a West Coast Open, Tory Ponds, he won. We all know his affinity for the grasses, for the plays. And uh, I'm not going to be surprised at all to see him in the mix. We, we've talked a lot about Scotty Scheffler. We've talked a lot about Rory McIlroy. But it would be Xander and Patrick that I would put on top of my list. Uh, even more so than Brooks Kepka, who of the major championships that he's won, traditionally Don't know, he's man. the best. Traditionally Don't he's know. the best in the U.S. Open. Yeah, and but I think this is going to be a different U.S. Open. I don't know. I can't make excuses for Brooks Koepka. I, I just can't anymore. Like, could he show up and win? Absolutely. I mean, what we saw at the PGA Championship is vintage Brooks. And I, I think you could probably say the same thing. I mean, Bryson DeChambeau seemed to find something at the PGA as well. Patrick Reed, in the limited chances we've seen him at the Masters and the PGA, has been pretty impressive. All of those guys could. Like, I'm not going to be surprised if any of them. I mean, I make the argument all the time that they were top 10 players. When they left to join Live Golf, they're still top 10 players. I just have such a hard time quantifying them because I don't have the data in front of me that we have for everyone else. Yeah, they just don't have the head-to-head numbers of, of, of what he would do against the Scotty Scheffler or John Rahm with yeah. any sort of regularity. However, I do think if you're not putting Brooks Kepka among your top three at the major championships for the remainder of the year, you are probably doing it wrong. The only thing that would let me not put Scotty Scheffler as the clear-cut number one heading into LACC is if we're looking at this major championship, that's going to be 15, 20 under par. Like he just, he, he's going to have to make the birdies in order to get it there. Uh, and I'm just not quite sure whether he can do that. What is that trophy and why, and why are you holding it? I don't know. It was just sitting here right in front of me. Uh, Dayton amateur. It's the Dayton amateur championship sure. trophy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, of nice. course it is. Uh, Rex, I know you are not a fervent follower of women's golf, not because you dislike it, but because your, your hands are tied with, with lawsuits and other PGA Tour matters. I know, I know you covered uh, the Olympics. Uh, that is your one. Uh, women's no, no, no. Team. I know what you're getting at. And I want to hear your taste because you've been on the Rose Wagon for a long time. And you have worn me out about it. I think everyone it. has. But, like, I have rolled a, my eyes at you repeatedly not, over this room. one. And I'm going to give you your moment. Trust me, you'll get your 90 seconds to sit and spew. But I, will, I just want to say this, that there was a moment. And it was even before the playoff was finished. Like it seemed pretty clear that Victor was going to win the playoff at the Memorial that everyone in the Memorial Media Center asked to have the channel changed because we all wanted to watch it. It was very cool. Now, 90 seconds ago. I mean. Or 90 minutes, whatever you want. You could not find a bigger star at a better time for the LPGA. You've had Nelly Korda kind of uh, take a step back this year. Uh, dealing with with some injuries. Lexi Thompson, uh, now as she gets into her mid-20s, has not panned out how everyone thought. Uh, Daniel Kang has suffered through some injuries as well. Like There is, I think, a, a, a void of a young, uh, charismatic, um, highly popular American player, right? And Rose Zhang, who just turned 20 years old, who has literally won everything at every level. She is essentially the Tiger Woods of 
women's golf. You look at her junior mm-hmm. and amateur resume. She's won that everything. one makes me uncomfortable. Like right, I've heard won, that a couple of times. She's won everything. Mm-hmm. She's won hundreds, hundreds, right. plural, hundreds of golf tournaments. Girls mm-hmm. junior, the uh, the the junior PGA. She won back to back NCAA championships. She's won twelve of twelve times, twelve of twenty times, while at Stanford. She won the U.S. Amateur. She won the Augusta National Women's Amateur. She could she could have won it multiple times. Like she has checked every single box. And then in her pro debut on the LPGA to go out and do something that has not been done since 1951. I, she, the thing about Rose is she doesn't do anything exceptional. Well. That, that's where I kind of differ with some of these Tiger Woods comparisons and what she can do. She's not, she's not, you know, exceedingly long. She's not a, a you know, a sharp shooting iron player. She's not the best chipper and putter of the ball on the LPGA, but what she is, and what she possesses is this just uncanny golf IQ to not make the mistakes that her fellow playing competitors do. Like that's kind of her recipe. You'll just look up and she shot 67. You don't really know how or why. And so she's going to have a tremendous career. That is not a hot take by any stretch of the imagination. We're looking at potentially one of the all-time best players if her resume then translates to the program, which – I mean, 72 holes into her pro career, uh, it certainly looks like she's she's in store some, for some very special things. Well, and to your point, she did what Tiger Woods did not do. Tiger Woods did not win his pro debut. So you're, you're right. I think it is. I, I I guess my question back to you, and, and I'm probably not the one qualified to say this, and I'm only going to base it on some things I saw on social media, like Joe Ogilvie, former tour player, pointed it out. Did the LPGA kind of miss the bus on this? Did Did they miss the bus in promoting her? I mean, again, I'm I'm very leery of being critical about something that I don't cover and and sort of watch intently. But it seems to me there was some pushback on social media. Uh, It seems some pushback. Like you went to the LPGA website and like there wasn't an update within two or three hours of Rose uh, taking the 54-hole lead, leading by two shots. Like that sort of thing is unacceptable. Like she had a media tour heading into her, her pro debut, but this should not have caught anyone by surprise. Like this should have been months of planning and and a rollout to make this as big and as spectacular as possible. It's not like she just decided at the last minute, like, oh, I'm going to turn pro after NCAAs. Like, this has been in the works uh, for several months now. She's doing the media blitz now. Like, I saw she was on the Today Show. She's the Empire State Building. Like, they're kind of maximizing uh, her her newfound popular, popularity among mainstream sports audience. But they need to go full bore all in on this kid. She's that special – she can handle it. She clearly has the golf. And what I'm really interested in seeing, Rex, is how is she received among her peers? She already had NIL deals in college. Now that she's turned pro, the sponsorship deal, she's I, I would I would fathom a educated guess that she's already making more money than every player who was on the LPGA. And so you factor in that money, the instant success the uh, popularity that she brings among the audience, uh, you would think if the LPGA is smart, that they would dive headlong into her and to make sure that they're promoting her in every single featured group, every single marketing material possible. Will there, and will there be any lingering resentment from the best players in the world? Because if you've ever spent any time around Roseanne, which I've been fortunate enough to do. If you if you've read stories about her, if you've seen her on TV clips, like Humble brag, she could not be a more delightful human being. But does she engender 
some jealousy among her peers. I'm very interested to see if that's the case. Uh, I will be curious because again, if we're doing the Tiger Woods comparison and, and this is easy, a lot of jealousy, this is easy. A, de- a couple decades down the road. Uh, yes, I, I'm sure there was, but I think that jealousy turned to appreciation in not a long period of time because again, and you can find tour pros at every event who concede the fact that we should cut Tiger Woods 10% of our checks. Like they all understand that we are where we are because of Tiger Woods. And I, I think at some point, if she is what you seem to think, and a lot of people seem to think she is, I would hope that the same sort of metamorphosis would happen on the LPJ, where you realize that a rising tide, all boats, man. I mean, and, and if this is going to be that rising tide, then let's go out and enjoy it. Yeah, that's certainly a great point. And I'm very curious to see where we go from here. I mean, she's already like a, a single name star. If you put her in the same category as Rose, a, a Tiger, a Rory, a Jordan, a Nelly, a Lydia, like everyone just knows Rose. Like she's she's literally an emoji. Like it did not take long. It took seventy two holes uh, before she was one of the most recognizable players uh, on the LPGA. I'm uh, fascinated to see where we go from here. Still just twenty years old, but now a uh, full member of the LPGA, which of course she can be eligible for the Solheim Cup uh, end of this year. She is a <laughs> she's a no brainer pick uh, for that American team, uh, which certainly just got better. Can't wait to cover that tournament uh, in a couple of months. Time. We're actually flying back home on Tuesday, and then we leave for U.S. Open. Uh, you and I both Monday. on Monday morning. The next podcast we do uh, will be live from LACC. What do you have planned for the rest of the week? More importantly, what are you throwing on the grill? I don't know that I'm throwing anything on the grill. Saturday is my birthday. Uh, oh, mate reached out to me. Yes, happy yes, early thank you very birthday. Much. Yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, Bunkmate, reach out. She wants to know what we want to do for the birthday. So I think we're going to the beach for a couple of days with some friends and the kitties. And so I, I don't know if I'll have a chance. I, I'm hoping, as I, we've, we've covered this what is before. Bunk, I, what is Bunk going to get you for the birthday? I'm dying it, it, to know. I, I'm hoping a Blackstone. But it, we all know that's just going to be another big TV. And I'll be like, ah, second TV. Uh, double, great, double, another double, screen, double screen in the bedroom. Uh, a 70 inch in the bathroom. Yeah, that's perfect. Yeah, that's exactly what we needed. Uh, yes, it's probably not going to be a Blackstone, which is so sad. I think I sent you a picture a couple of weeks ago about me doing smash burgers on my little tiny oh, skillet on the grill. Never it's, seen, it's never a, seen a more, a more pathetic sight. Uh, very, fingers very crossed. Sad. What do you got going on? Fingers crossed that bunk will bail you out there that you will finally mercifully uh, get that Blackstone. A uh, big news. Uh, speaking of grills, uh, for me as well, I'm finally placing the order for the offset smoker that I've been teasing for several months now. We got a lot it. of hand. Did a lot of hand wringing. Did a lot of perseverating for what I was actually going to get. I finally decided, Rex, uh, to get what is called a Workhorse 1969. It is an absolutely beautiful smoker. The difference between that and the Shirley that I was looking at, it's a direct flow smoker uh, as opposed to the reverse flow, which what the Shirley is. I just – I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Uh, a lot. Uh, I, I follow all the barbecue pit masters on Instagram. I've, I've made no bones about it. I'm a wannabe – uh, barbecue influencer, all these guys have a direct flow pit, and so I felt like I wouldn't be a, I wouldn't be a real man uh, if I did not get one. So Where I'm you placing an it? order. So it's in the back left. I have like an empty quadrant. Wife is really not happy about this, Rex. I'm not gonna lie; mm-hmm. she's not happy that we were gonna be polluting the outdoor kitchen uh, with what is a, a bit of a tank. It's like 750, 800 pounds. Uh, that's gonna be in the back left corner. Uh, but look, Yolo. I could die next year. I could die in five years. I want to do what makes me happy. Wow, that's dark. All right. It is. But YOLO. And so that's what we're going to do. 
Uh, I'm not going to sell any of the other grills. Um, wife, I, I cannot stress this enough, uh, is not happy. Even though, even though I, I've, I've sold stuff, I've moved stuff around, took on freelance gigs, like it's not coming out of the budget. She just doesn't like the optics. Uh, it's not coming out of the budget. Be my eighth smoker uh, in the backyard. Yeah, uh, it's certainly an addiction. Uh, but what are you going to do about it? Uh, what are you going to do about it? I, I will say this, and I, I can't give away any any secrets here, but this is more, please reach out to us. Let us know. You guys are great about getting back to us. What would you guys feel about if we were to get a sponsor that we would have to wear a jacket? A red jacket. Throwing, Not a green uh, jacket. Sure, a red jacket. It wouldn't be a green jacket. That's ridiculous. We would, that. No, we would, certainly, sure. we would certainly take a green jacket if one were offered. Yes. That's right. Uh, but give us your thoughts on, on how your th- if we did these podcasts in a red jacket, is it going to take away our credibility? Is it going to make Labner look silly? Like, let us know. Anything more than I already would. Uh, I'm not I'm not fully opposed to it. We throw it on at the end. I didn't say I was opposed to it. All all that matters to me, Rex, is getting this sponsored by either a, an alcohol company or a barbecue company. Don't really care Agreed. which one it is. Preferably Agreed. both. Uh, and send us free samples. We will be the greatest pitchman uh, you've ever had. All right, that's going to do it for this edition of the Golf Channel Podcast with Rex and Lab. Make sure you guys check out uh, Golf Channel for all of our reports from Golf's Longest Day. Make sure you golf uh, golfchannel.com for all the news and updates from the RBC Canadian Open. Roy McIlroy is the defending champion. We'll be back next week, special pod. Do the preview pod on Tuesday, LACC. And then, Rex, drumroll, please. <laughs> Mini pods each and every night from the U.S. Open. You are not actually leaving this one early. You'll be able to see this one through to the conclusion on Sunday night. Uh, Look forward to that. Thank you guys for listening to this edition. We'll talk to you next week live from L.A. It's called a Blackstone, Buckmank. Look it up. Look it up.